Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Our guest today is Theda Scotchpole, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University and the Director of the Scholars Strategy Network a network of professors that seeks to improve public policy and strengthen democracy by organizing scholars working in America's colleges and universities and connecting them and their research to policymakers, citizens associations, and the media. Professor Scotchpole is an expert on the history of American civic and political institutions, and her recent work has applied this knowledge to the Tea Party, the Koch brothers, and the range of organizations currently marshalling resources and political energy on the right and the left. Today, we talk with her about how the Koch brothers have transformed American democracy and whether any corollaries are emerging on the political left. Sheeta Scotchpole, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. So you've been writing a lot lately about the Koch brothers and about the funding of politics generally, and many of our listeners have heard of the Koch brothers, whose effects on politics most people seem to know something, but maybe not a lot about. What do you think most Americans should know about the Koch brothers' effects on politics today? We're talking about two billionaire, multi-billionaire brothers, Charles and David Koch, out of a, a set of four in their family who made their fortunes, still make their fortunes, from a big conglomerate called Coke Industries. And I think a lot of people have kind of vaguely heard that those two individuals give a lot of money in politics and that maybe they fight environmental regulations or uh, don't want the government involved in dealing with global warming because maybe it would hurt the interests of their industry. Uh, I think that's uh, not the most important thing uh, for people to know. And in the research that my colleagues and I are doing on the shifts in American politics in recent times, we've focused on the Koch seminars, which is a set of meetings that happen twice a year in which the Koch brothers have persuaded a lot of other wealthy, conservative-minded millionaires and billionaires to regularly attend meetings in the, in the, in the winter and the, and, the, and the early summer of each year and uh, give uh, hundreds of millions and now close to a billion dollars to uh, influence American politics in a whole series of ways. So it goes a long ways beyond just thinking about one policy area like environmental regulation or the interests of any particular industry it's really a, a set of people who are trying to advance what they think of as free market, minimal government approaches to American politics and policy. So um, this money is channeled to building other organizations that can persuade the Republican Party to cut taxes, get rid of regulations, disorganize labor unions, remove their rights to organize. Um, do a whole series of things in many different policy areas. Um, and other organizations advance particular policy ideas in some of these areas that are free market ideas. It's really not just the brothers themselves. It's all the other wealthy conservatives that they've inspired to work together 
through the cult network, as many people call it, to pull the Republican Party ever further toward uh, the free market right. An interesting undertone to what you're saying there is the rootedness of this funding in an economic vision, in a free market vision, which some research in sociology and political science suggests is culturally associated with the social conservatism that's typical of the Republican Party. But why that is isn't exactly clear. How do those different ways of being conservative, the cultural and the economic, come together? Well, if you mean by social conservatism, um, the broad strand in American conservatism now that's tied to evangelical uh, Protestantism that thinks in terms of um, um, pro-life policies, removing any support for encouragement or even legal acceptance of abortion, um, reinforcing traditional family roles, uh, opposing gay marriage. That's not what the Koch brothers and their like-minded, many of their like-minded fellow millionaires and billionaires are about. Their understanding is economic in the sense that it's about minimizing the role of government and intervening in the market economy and encouraging individuals uh, to maximize their free choices in society and the marketplace. Libertarianism is the kind of moral philosophy that it's most closely tied to. And libertarianism is not the same thing as Christian conservatism. But it would be a mistake to say that the Koch network is emphasizing an economic view and that religious conservatives on the right are are focusing on culture and morals, because I think that the libertarians and the free market advocates in the Koch network think of themselves, certainly the Koch brothers themselves think of themselves as committed to a moral vision, a moral vision of freedom in the modern world. For them, it's a secular religion. That's a really interesting point. And to think about the ways that their vision of freedom in the modern world corresponds with the notion of freedom that we see from all the way back to the Puritan tradition, the freedom to live a certain way, the freedom to live by a certain code, an almost more restrictive sense of freedom. It it makes me think about some critiques I've seen lately of the political left, which suggest that the moral vision, if you will, on the left is lacking, that Some people say identity politics has become too strong. There's no way of saying this is who we are and this is what we stand for. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I think most people on the broad, uh, if I could say small S, small D, social democratic left do have a a shared moral vision. I think they're um, not very adept at articulating it. Uh, And we can talk about why that's true in a minute. But I think, let's take the idea of freedom. Um, from the uh, libertarian ultra-free market perspective that the Kochs and many of their associates articulate, the health reform law, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is a restriction on freedom because it uses some government regulations to limit uh, what insurance companies can do, and it even tells individuals that they all have to buy some minimum of insurance so that the insurance system works for everyone. From... um, from an honestly articulated liberal perspective, 
however. There is no such thing as individual freedom if people can't count on a modicum of access to affordable health care. It's a prerequisite for being able to exercise individual responsibility and to realize individual potential. So that pretty nicely articulates two very different conceptions of what freedom is all about. And I think the liberal version could be articulated as a moral understanding. Unfortunately, people don't do it. And I think they don't do it for two reasons. I think there are a lot of people on the left who entertain the idea, which I think is false, that everything is determined by economic interest. Um, I don't think it is. <laughs> I think values that people are committed to and learn and share with others also matter. Um, they matter for rich people and for non-rich people alike. Um, and in some ways, the left has in common with religious conservatives a degree of respect for community ties, for the importance of kind of shared community values and practices. Obviously, the, there are different ones that they're talking about, but both of those understandings are a little bit more civic or community oriented than the hyper-individualism and, 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 and let anything happen on the market uh, version of freedom that the, the Koch brothers are committed to. Mm -hmm. These are all, however, moral philosophies. I don't think that most of us are accustomed to thinking about libertarianism as a moral philosophy, thinking about free market economics as a moral philosophy. Where does that philosophy come from? How is it articulated today? Well, if you go back to the origins of kind of market thinking, you'll find that it was philosophers who laid out some of these ideas, and they did they did um, often make quite clear what they saw as the moral underpinnings. The market was originally seen as a mechanism for maximizing human freedom uh, and wealth at the same time. And obviously it was being defined against autocratic states at the time. For some people, they're kind of frozen in that moment, and they st they still see modern democratic governments as the same thing as autocratic monarchies. Well, they're not, but uh, um, I don't think, I mean, if people don't see these as morally grounded philosophies, I think that's just that they haven't uh, thought very much about their origins historically. And they haven't thought very much about what it takes for people to be committed in politics. You know, the people that work with the Koch brothers, um, mean that the Koch network is much more than the brothers themselves. Um, and they, that wouldn't be happening if people didn't think they were taking part in a crusade, and they do. At the meetings they hold, they talk about that. They talk about themselves as the fighting to save freedom in America. And who are the people who are attending these meetings, by and large? They're wealthy, uh, largely business people, uh, mostly men, and, but with their wives, they come to the meetings. They are millionaires and billionaires who've made their wealth in a variety of industries, some of them in finance, but many of them in manufacturing, mining, um, other, a whole array of other industries. They live all over the country uh, and uh, are often quite influential in their state and local communities. Do you think that they attend the Coke um, consortia, I believe is your term for this? Do they, do they attend these, these consortia? 
with the idea of advancing a moral goal, or do they learn that it's a moral goal as they go? Well, that's an interesting question, and to get at that in our research, I'd have to be able to talk to people. But I have read some letters that people have written or accounts that they've, op-eds that they've written. A few people who participate in the Koch seminars will write about the experience, and they will say things like, it opened my eyes to, you know, the importance of working together and the larger goals that we're working for. So I think that there probably is a, a, a component of learning to understand this as a moral and social commitment. Uh-huh. Now, you also write about a consortium on the left. Right. What's the name of that group? That's the Democracy Alliance. And these consortia, by the way, are groups of wealthy donors that we think have, uh, in our research, have some important features that are different from just one wealthy person giving to one election candidate. Uh, these consortia are ongoing groups. They have rules of membership. They are meant to kind of pool money to pursue longer-term political change than just financing one election or one candidate. And uh, a lot of the money that both the Koch seminars on the right and the Democracy Alliance on the progressive left raise goes to other organizations, to think tanks, to constituency mobilizing groups, to issue advocacy organizations. And it's intended to kind of shift the whole agenda of politics in the direction that these wealthy donors that are banded together in these consortia would like to, like to advance. Do you have a sense that the philosophical or moral unity that you've described among the Koch consortium also exists in the it's Democracy Alliance? It's not as clearly articulated in the Democracy Alliance because the rules of membership in the Democracy Alliance are that people just commit to give some money to a long to some organizations on a long list. So the causes that they hear about and that they commit themselves to tend to be more fragmented. That said, I do think that I, that people attend these meetings with a, with a sense of moral purpose. And that's true on the left as well as on the right. And so when a donor goes to a Democracy Alliance meeting for several days and hears about economic justice organizations or civil rights organizations or organizations mobilizing restaurant workers, those kinds of specific organizations, and decides that they're going to make a donation to them, they're doing it because they believe in the values they're advancing, not simply um, because they got a lot of money that they have to spend somewhere. Mm -hmm. They could spend it somewhere else. One of the larger points that you make coming out of this analysis is that the Republican Party has moved much more to the right than the Democratic Party has to the left. Does that have anything to do with these respective consortia and their activities? We believe it does because the Koch seminars have raised a lot more resources on the far right than the Democracy Alliance has on the left. But even more important than that, the Koch seminars raise the money and then channel it into a tightly knit set of closely coordinated organizations that have created a sort of virtual third political party on the far right. And uh, the centerpiece organization is Americans for Prosperity, which is a huge nationally organized federation that also exists in three dozen states. And it is meant to bolster conservative and Republican candidates in elections. And then once they're elected, to push them in policy campaigns to enact the free market, anti-union, social spending cut type policies that the Koch uh, network advocates. And we think that they've been very successful in doing that. They've been very successful in influencing 
the way Republican candidates and officeholders think and in using a combination of activism and money to induce them to, um, to promise the kinds of policies they want and then to carry through on those promises, even if those policies prove to be unpopular once they're elected. How does Americans for Prosperity work? Are they similar to the community organizations that we see on the left in their strategies, their tactics? Who are these people that are applying this pressure? Well, they're a lot more centralized. I mean, uh, Americans for Prosperity is run out of a corporate-like headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, and the state directors are put in place and removed at will um, by their superiors. Um, They usually serve for a couple years, but if somebody doesn't do what's expected, they'll be removed very quickly. They certainly are not elected inside their states. Uh, They are tied to activists who are on the mailing lists and on the contact lists uh, who are conservative-minded people who want to be part of Americans for Prosperity. And Americans for Prosperity will call them members, but they're not members in the sense that they're voting for anything. Um, I guess that has some similarities to what we see with some advocacy groups on the left. But what's different about Americans for Prosperity is that it's huge. It's organized across most of the country. And uh, 80% of the U.S. population lives in states that that have paid Americans for Prosperity organizations, and it coordinates money, advertising campaigns, lobbying, uh, you know, activist events, um, all those things in in a very uh, flexible and powerful way. So it is in some ways like a major political party. And some of the policies that Americans for Prosperity has helped to advance, policy proposals anyway, things that might not have been adopted yet, Social Security reform, Medicare reform, um, other reforms in the health insurance market seem rather unpopular. They are very unpopular. This is a point you make in your research. So how does Americans for Prosperity mobilize people to apply pressure for unpopular things? Well, I mean, think about what uh, a candidate trying to run for office on the Republican ticket, it's almost always Republican, not absolutely always, but almost always, uh, or trying to thinking about re-election or thinking about um, um, not arousing a lot of opposition. Or um, What do they want? Well, they want um, support from voters, but they especially want the activists, the people that speak out not to be criticizing them, not to be funding a challenge to them. And when it comes election time, if they are challenged or if they have to face Democrats in general elections, they want ads running their support and people knocking in doors in their support. Some of the kinds of things that unions have long done for Democrats, uh, public sector unions in particular, because they're organized in every community in every state, are the kinds of things that Americans for Prosperity does for, for conservative Republicans. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Scotchball. Okay. Okay. Good stuff at Society Pages. Thank you. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Theta Scotchball was produced by me, Matthew Aguilar-Shampoo, as part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of politics at the societypages.org.